Welcome to episode 303 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. When done wrong, breakout rooms in a Zoom event can be the thing that makes the participant leave the meeting altogether. Ugh. When done right, they can be the most memorable aspect of the experience, creating strong connections among participants. And that's exactly what my free engaging breakout room series will show you in eight quick tutorial videos. You'll learn how to ask the right question to achieve the best outcome, figure out the right number of people and minutes for each exercise, easily manage breakout room options to create memorable experiences, and technical details that will keep you from nervously sweating as you click open all rooms. You'll get this resource in over 30 of our most requested Zoom tutorial videos at robbysamuels.com forward slash videos. Now, be ready to dive in deeper. You can attend my online facilitation and purpose first design workshop on November 2nd. During this two hour session, we'll design together a thoughtful, deliberate online event focused on purpose, intent, and the expectations of your participants. You'll learn how to use knowledge gaps to get audience to stop multitasking during your session how to design your panels to respond to the most common objections to taking action. Make it easy for your participants to go from inspiration to action. Let's work together to make your next online session one that will not just be attended, it will be memorable. Register at robbysamuels.com forward slash better zoom. Now onto this week's interview. Today's guest can be found at the intersection of impact and collaboration. He's a consultant that works with institutions of higher education and their partners in communities, government, and business to achieve economic and social impact goals. He's worked with institutions like the Ohio State University, Indiana University, University of Oregon, and others to develop strategies for collaborative community and regional transformation. He's the founder of Venn Collaborative, professional development, networking, and services organization that offers online courses and other opportunities to higher education leaders and to community, economic, and workforce development professionals. Most recently, he launched his podcast, The Collaborative Effect, to speak with people from all walks of life and work about how they want to leave an impact in the world. Please join me in welcoming Jim Woodell. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Robbie. Appreciate, I appreciate your invitation to be here. Jim, thanks so much for joining us from your place in Washington, D.C. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have a succinct definition of leadership, but um, I, you know, I do think that there are some qualities uh, that I think have come to mind for me about what what makes for good leadership. Um and, you know, I think they start with kind of listening more than you tell and uh, guiding more than you direct. And, you know, that that from my perspective, th that perspective on leadership, I think for me comes from the days when I was working in largely in, in K to 12 education. In fact, I was doing workshops for teachers. So I was teaching teachers about teaching. So how meta is that? Um, and 
you know, a lot of the, uh, at the time, there was a lot of uh, use of the phrase about teaching, you know, teaching should be more about being a guide on the side than a sage on the stage. And that really resonated with me. And it resonated with the teachers that I worked with. And, um, and it occurred to me that that same idea about being a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage could be a really powerful way of thinking about leadership as well as teaching. Um, and I just, I really, and more recently, um, I've worked in this universe of people who do engagement of universities with their communities. And these are the same kinds of things that we talk about in engagement. You know, we listen first to understand what the needs are. And then we think about how we can bring the assets that we have uh, to that. Um, so, you know, listening uh, and guiding more than telling and uh, directing. I think the other really important aspect of leadership for me is the idea of leadership as service and serving. And I know there's all of this literature out there about servant leadership, although I have to say I'm not all that familiar with it. But one thing I will say is that, you know, the idea of servant leadership resonates with me. But one thing that one way I think about it that I'm not sure everybody does is that it's important to think about when you're leading that you're not just serving the people you are leading, the people who are following you uh, or who and work for you or whatever it is. You're also, first of all, you need to serve yourself, that you need to be part of that equation because you're not going to be an effective leader if you don't take care of yourself and your needs, right? So you've got to be able to get something out of it as well. And importantly, you and your followers may not be serving just yourselves. In fact, you're probably serving some other audience, you know, so the that is an important part of thinking about that service, leadership as service is who are the people you're serving? You're not just serving the followers. You're also serving what one might call customers or one might call beneficiaries or, um, you know, there might be different words depending on what kind of uh, field you're in. But um, I think that's a really important aspect of, of leadership, the idea of being able to serve and, and not just serving the folks who are following you or working for you, but also yourself and the ben the ultimate beneficiaries of your work. It's too bad you really haven't thought about this, Jim. <laughs> I, I really appreciate everything you just said. And that um, that phrase around um, guy on the side, not, not the sage on the stage, um, I've, I've heard in so many different contexts, and it really does fit here when thinking about being a good leader, the idea of guiding versus directing. Um, that's, that's, a, that's something that I think is often missing when people are trying to step into a leadership role. They think they have to be more authoritative. Um, and demanding as opposed to encouraging coaching. Right. And um, that, uh, that I think also the piece about needing to take care of yourself um, in, in when you're thinking of service, I, th I do think sometimes people are um, so giving that they forget that. Um, and that's true in a lot of different roles, mm -hmm. um, whether it's entrepreneurship or leadership in a, in a more corporate environment or nonprofit that can, that can definitely uh, losing yourself, which would be, I think a, a, quick pass to to burnout <laughs> if, right. uh, yeah. if you keep doing that you don't feel fulfilled yeah and I, um you know i'm trying to imagine who you were when you were first growing up because like i only know you in the shape and form you are today and the leader that you are today so back in the day when you you know roll back the clock to you know i don't even know like elementary school the playground 
you know, high school, running for office, you know, any any formal or informal um, titles of of leadership. Uh, were you the one organizing the kids, or were you kind of watching from the side? Teachers noticing you. Who'd you look up to? Like, you know, kind of what kind of kid were you back in the day? Oh, um, well, so first of all, it was a really long time ago, but um, I will try to remember as best I can. Um, I mean, I th- when I think about it, a lot of the same things that, you know, the picture that is coming to mind for me is sort of the the group of people that I connected with and hung out with. And I should start, by the way, by saying that I moved a lot when I was a kid. I went to 12 schools before I even got to college. So I was constantly making new friends, right? Like I just, that was, and, you know, partly because I had to, right? So I I actually attribute some of my uh, qualities that I kind of have taken into my professional life, my personal life now, as having come from that experience of having to move so much. But what I did was I always kind of created a crowd. Like I created the, the, the people that I knew were going to be the people that would, they would help me, right? Like they would help me fit in. They would help me figure out the stuff the quickest so that I wouldn't have to spend months. Cause I didn't know, you know, I might not be in this place for more than a few months. Right. So I needed to figure things out very quickly. So I was really good at identifying early on, like who the people were, who the kids were that, you know, knew about the other kids or knew who the right people were to hang out with or who the right teachers were to treat in specific ways or whatever. Um, and I think that, you know, it's interesting to reflect on this now because I I don't think I have before, but I, I think that is kind of what I have brought into sort of my life as, you know, and in, in what, what leadership roles I have played. Um, that's what I've done. I've, I've, so maybe the, the one thing I didn't mention in my idea of leadership is this connectivity idea. I think connecting is a really important part of leadership as well, that, you know, finding out what the needs are, what the assets are in other, you know, parts of your community, your followers, whatever the phrase is that you use for the the people you are leading. Um, and that's what I did. I, I I found those, I made connections, I made connections for myself, but I also started to make connections between and among those people. And that's what I've done in my professional life. I think that's been a significant part of my leadership is identify where things are and link things up so that you can be effective. I'm just trying to wrap my head around the idea of being a kid who's moved that much between like your first part of, of going to school and like, you know, college. And it's not even like you had a full year everywhere. It sounds yeah. like you sometimes I had one had week. At, I had one week at one school in Hartford, Connecticut. I was wow. in school for one week. So did you have a parent that you were moving oh, around just, with? People always say, were you a military yeah. brat or, you know, like, it's just kind of family dysfunction, you know, just a lot of different stuff kind of turning yeah. over all the time. So it, what's interesting about that is how kids are, you know, we always talk about kids being incredibly resilient mm-hmm. and clearly the way you interpreted this became this game of understanding how systems work, how yeah. communities are built, how personalities like mesh and don't um, like, like learning the rules of, of a space um, yeah. as quickly as possible. And when you grow up in a, in a space, you don't have to do that because the rules are basically bred into you. Um, And it's like a fish in water. Like you can't name why things are the way they are. Um, You didn't have that luxury. And so you had to constantly both reinvent yourself, but also like learn like to read a room. And 
most of us going into college have zero expertise or even practice <laughs> in doing that. Um, and we often make really bad choices about the people we hang out with when we're suddenly given a space that the rules are not set in stone. We all come with our, you know, our different understanding of how those rules should be read and whose who's house rules are we playing with <laughs> kind of thing. So I'm curious as you went into, it sounds like you went off to college. So when you went off to college, yeah. how did having that, first of all, stability for the first time, because you were like in a place I, I'm hearing maybe? Did you get to stay in, in one spot for a little while in college? <laughs> well, I, I went to Syracuse University. I was there for one semester as a freshman, ran out of money, and had to go back home to Western Massachusetts. I went to Holyoke Community College for a semester. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got back to Syracuse. I made sure I got my act together financially and everything else I needed to do. But so I did pretty much have an uninterrupted college experience at Syracuse without, with the exception of that second semester uh, mm -hmm. freshman year. Yeah, I'm just curious, like what lessons you bring into that space, whereas a lot of your um, peers, you know, don't like you're like, I know how to read the room and I know which people will help me understand this or that. Like everything you just said, it's like it's fascinating to me to have that skill set. You know, and I don't think I was aware of that skill set. Like it wasn't like something that was top of mind for me. It just was it was survival, I think, is what it had been as growing up. So it wasn't necessarily something like I thought, well, I can deploy these skills and use them in a particular way. Um, I'm not sure I even thought have been that thoughtful about it in my adult life and my career. But going to college, I think I did realize that there were opportunities for people who had my skills or personality or whatever I was calling it at that time. Um, I, you know, I, I realized that, you know, like you, I could become the leader of a student organization because I had the things that people who are leaders of the student organizations, they do, they manage to get people energized about something. They are able to kind of, as you were pointing out, sort of see the systems and kind of line things up uh, appropriately for those. I became an RA, when I was a, an undergrad, because I saw that that was an opportunity for people with the kinds of skills that I had. So, yeah, I, I think I did leverage them uh, a lot and, and got a lot of satisfaction out of those kinds of roles, too, you know, because, you know, it feels good when you're using things that you're good at or doing things. Yeah, that you're it good suits at, you so. at that point. You're like, yeah. well, I know how to do this. It's not a stretch. Yeah. yeah. Well, going into college, what did you think you were going to be? Did you have a, a sort of goal, career plan or anything like that? Yeah, I did. I was going to be a Hollywood director, producer, something along those lines. Uh, and I you know, studied television, radio and film. And uh, uh, the summer after my sophomore year, I spent the summer in Hollywood doing an internship. And uh, I, I kind of just got turned off by the entertainment industry. Not that, I mean, I have a lot of respect for people who work in that industry and great stuff comes from it. I love to consume that stuff. I just didn't want to be in it because it felt to me like, um, I don't know, it felt to me very frequently kind of that some people in that industry were kind of shallow and they were just sort of looking out for themselves or, or whatever. And I don't know, you just, I was in college and I wanted to make a difference in the world. And that didn't seem to me like the way to make a difference. And so I got back to Syracuse that fall and I immediately enrolled in an education minor. <laughs> 
And uh, I kept the I kept the television radio film thing going as my major, but I decided I wanted to apply what I was learning about media to the field of education. And so that's how I ended up in education was I started out by wanting to do educational media. And one of my first jobs after college was working at PBS and um, developing content for adult learners. And uh, so that, there was a quick shift there. We need people like you who who have those like big picture like you want to make this difference, but you also learn really valuable um, tools, like how to do media correctly, um, can apply that in an educational setting. I mean, like that sounds like a, a great then speaking of the name of your company. I yeah. love the name of your company. Well, thanks. Um, I think when I learned what a then was, uh, then I, I was like, yeah, like that to me was like, that was like one of those things that when I heard the concept explained, um, and there was an image actually, I'm, this is something I've never shared. In my aunt's house, there was a Venn as, uh, I think it's stained glass. And, oh. um, you know, at some point I recognize it as like the, um, the I think it's MasterCard symbol. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right. how I thought yeah, of it. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, it's like the MasterCard symbol. <laughs> and I was always really drawn to it. I just thought it was so neat. And when I finally learned the like concept of a Venn diagram, I was like, oh, I love this idea. But I feel like some of what you've been talking about is you're always trying to find that overlap. Like you're, you know, you were like threading the needle as carefully as you could for as much time as you had to figure out like where you fit in and where, and then later on, as you acquired more skills, like how do you apply the skills you've acquired in the exact way that would leverage the kind of impact you're hoping to have? And um, it sounds like you landed somewhere great. I mean, PBS is a fantastic place to have on your resume. Um, So did that, like, it's dream fulfilled. Like, it's amazing to have that right out of school. Um, What happens next? Where do you, where do your career take you? Uh, Well, my next thing was like another sort of, uh, so I was a first generation college student. And um, so getting to Syracuse and actually getting back to Syracuse, that was all a big accomplishment. Um, then yeah, I got a great job um, at PBS, and and then I decided I wanted a master's, right? And so of course I have to be like I'm 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 a I'm a classic overachiever too. So anyway, I couldn't just go anywhere, so I had to go to Harvard to get my master's degree. So I went to I went to Harvard uh, and studied education there. Um, and I became, and that's where I really kind of became, in, I became interested in teachers, actually, much more than K-12 to education itself. I became very interested in K-12 to teachers and the lives they lived and the lives they lived in their professional life, meaning like, so, and how they were treated. And, you know, it became very interesting to me to think about like how, um, how education could be better if we made the the professional lives of teachers better. And, uh and I had this educational media and technology background. So I was, that's what I was studying in my master's program was uh, kind of how do we use technology and media in, in education? And it was mostly focused on K to 12 education at the time. And then I went off, I went to work for an educational software company. Um, the name of the company was Tom Snyder Productions, not that Tom Snyder that everybody thinks of the late night talk show host, a different Tom Snyder, but um it was great. I went to work for that company to do this teacher training. I traveled all over the country constantly. I was on the road like 80% of the time and I was just doing workshops and, you know, 
uh, urban, suburban, and rural locales, um, working with teachers and showing them how to use the software that our, my company made. But we had this really cool approach to it. It wasn't just, we're going to show you how to use our software, you know, click this and open this. It was it was uh, the workshop, the main workshop we did was called Great Teaching in the One Computer Classroom. Because, you know, in the 90s, you know, it, teachers were lucky if they had one computer in their classroom and they had to figure out how to make use of that as a good teaching tool. So our whole thing was how to make use of that as a presentation tool, essentially. And we taught teachers how to connect their TV up to the the, the computer, which back then was not like a simple thing. And and taught them how to use it as a tool for themselves to like really help them with what they needed to do. So that was really cool. And um, I kind of continued in that vein. Um, I went on to work for another company where we did these expeditions, uh, online expeditions. So we sent explorers to different parts of the world. And uh, I oversaw the work that they did in writing curriculum. So essentially they were writing their notes about like their explorations and K to 12 teachers in their classrooms would follow along. Um, so I stayed in that universe. I then started to think I really kind of want to be back in higher ed. I've always been more interested in grownups learning than kids learning. Um, and that's why sort of when I was in K to 12 education, I was really focused on the grownups and K to 12 education teachers. Um, and so I decided I would, um, make that move. I, I'm not going to remember every detail, but, uh, I ended up eventually at um, Southern New Hampshire University, where I managed the online education programs. Um, uh, I did that for a couple of years, although I was commuting from Somerville, which I know you know. Um, uh, so it was kind of a drag. So then I ended up working for North Shore Community College for a couple of years, doing the distance learning and academic technology stuff there. And that brought me to... I had a great deal of frustration with college administration that <laughs> I'd become a college administrator. And I decided, first of all, I decided I did want, I did want to spend the rest of my, my career in higher education. So I, I knew I would get a PhD. I needed to get a PhD. I needed to get a doctorate. Didn't necessarily need to be a PhD. Uh, could have been an EDD, but I needed to have a doctorate if I was going to stay in this world of higher education. So at 40 years old, I was crazy enough and my husband was supportive enough <laughs> to make the decision that I was going to go to graduate school again, full time uh, as a, a PhD student. And I went to Penn State and started working on my PhD in higher education. And long story short, I thought I went, I went there with this one interest about like decision making in higher education and how data are used or not used. And Anyway, I got distracted by this other idea, which I kind of learned from one of my uh, faculty mentors that that colleges and universities actually have a tremendous impact beyond just teaching students and graduating students who then go on to, to do good things in the world. They also have this big impact on the economy, uh, the local economy where they are. They also have this big impact on communities and how communities develop and and. Um, and so I, I became very interested in that idea that colleges and universities create this impact beyond the teaching and learning mission that we all know about. So, so that, that, that was kind of what, you know, I, I took that and said, I'm going to make a career out of that. And that's what I've done. I, I, at, right after I finished my coursework, um, I started working at the association of public and land grant universities. And I worked with public research universities across the U S helping them think about, 
and this is where the Venn diagram comes in, we created to think about the ways in which universities have this impact. We created this Venn diagram, talent, innovation, and place, three circles overlapping. And we talked about the ways in which universities create talent, workforce development assets and opportunities. We talked about the ways in which innovation, uh, technology coming out of research universities and the entrepreneurship that happens around them and place, the idea of creating great places to work and live. So this to us was this Venn diagram and what we felt was really important. And when I say we, it was sort of me and the members, the people from all these different universities, we'd get together and think about how do we create frameworks and tools for people to do this kind of work. Um, we would talk about the intersectionality, you know, that's those intersections where the really important stuff happens. Not, not that it isn't important to kind of be in one of the circles, but when you're at the intersections, you have this opportunity to have a scale of impact that you might not have otherwise. And so that Venn diagram became very central to the work that I did. I was at APLU for seven years. And just a few years ago, I decided I was going to strike out and, and, uh, do this work independently. And, and we've continued the Venn diagram work for, for the last few years. And so anyway, you didn't ask, but that's where Venn collaborative comes from. I have to now unpack all of this amazingness. One, I, I want to note that you were part of the ed tech world before it probably was called ed tech. You were part of online and distance learning before it became ubiquitous with Zoom. I mean, <laughs> these, these, I was actually these... at, at PBS. I was doing distance learning via satellite. So this was actually I was at PBS before anybody was using the web. And we were doing all of this stuff with, you know, we were rent, you know, re leasing satellite time. And Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that's how we did it. I mean, talk about precursor to the world we live in today that we couldn't imagine not living in. But, you know, there was a time when we all used stamps to talk to each other. And I mean, postage stamps. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> Um, and before that, we had horses that gathered the letters. So let's really go far back. Um, so that's just really and, cool that you... And distance learning goes that far back too. You know, correspondence schools, you know, right. that, that has been around since then. You were, you're kind of a, a Forrest Gump in a way. You you sound like you were on the um, front edge of a lot of innovation at different points in your career, although at the time you probably didn't see it as innovation. It was just like what you were doing, but seeing what has come from all those things you were doing, it really is like the foundation or the precursor to what's happening today, which gives you a really interesting vantage point, I think, to how you're seeing the world, that coupled with the really unique way you grew up um, and your understanding of people and systems. And then you you get connected in with this, this you know, it sounds like a, a great, um, mentor professor who sort of mentions this concept of the impact of a, of a university locally and you sort of latch on. I mean, it, it is sort of striking that place being one of the things that you've researched is something you were lacking growing up. So you might have a greater understanding of the importance of place than other people might have. And that might've been part of what brought you in to, 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 to do this and to like focus other people's energy on it. A lot of us take these things for granted. Like, you know, you just you just show up and if it's there. Um, I have put a lot of energy into thinking about how do you create community. I think a place in the space of that, but um, I think it's really different from how you were maybe approaching it. And I went and I've seen the connections that you're seeing when you're like, oh yeah, actually the, the university has like this disproportionate impact on all these things. Um, 
And I just love the idea that you then brought a Venn into like describe talent, innovation, and place to, to center the conversation. Um, you had at the end of all this, before you went out on your own, you had a place that you were at for seven years that was clearly giving you the support you needed to do the kind of work you wanted to be doing in the world. Why, why leave the theoretical, um, I don't know, stability. <laughs> we, I say theoretical stability because we now with layoffs, et cetera, now understand that that's not. Yeah. What is stable. stability anymore? But like, yeah. why, why leave the like relative stability of a job like that? And then decide you were going to take this IP that you've created and like continue it in your own way as an entrepreneur like were you were you at that point surrounded by any entrepreneurs that you were you were studying entrepreneurship is that kind of what led you to think well i could do even more if i didn't have all this red tape or something like what's the initiative what's the catalyst um well my husband would tell you that i'm just uh um impatient and i get bored easily and uh, you know you talked about how i was sort of at the leading edge of some of these things and Ar arthur my husband always says yeah you just you get bored with things before they become a thing like <laughs> so um so part of it is just sort of my restlessness i have kind of you know before the job at uh, aplu i had never been in a job in my whole professional life for more than a couple maybe two and a half years so you know that you know, so I moved a lot when I was a kid. I changed jobs a lot in my career, went from jobs to school or whatever. So some of it was just, okay, seven years. Wow, it's time. <laughs> Got to do something new. Um, I think some of it too was just understanding the the network or the community that I was in and seeing a need to... Um, okay, so I had developed and uh, accomplished quite a bit in those seven years and uh, engaged our members around um, a lot of really neat things. You know, we took that model of talent innovation place, we blew it up into this whole pro uh, program called the Innovation and Economic Prosperity Universities Designation Program, IEP Universities. And if you work in K-12 schools, IEP means something very different, but um, that's not what we meant by IEP. It was Innovation and Economic Prosperity. So now universities across the country work towards getting this designation of being, they do a whole self-study, they work with external stakeholders, they do this big you know, effort. It's really tremendous what these institutions have done. I think there's something like 80 universities that have now earned this designation. And that was really cool because it was a a way to tap into something that was deeply felt by these professionals, which was essentially, we need to tell our story better. People don't know we have this impact. We need to be able to convey that better. So this tool helps them get started on this, this tool of, of this um, designation program. And they go through this process. Some institutions, I, you know, I know one institution has applied recently for that program that that worked on their their application for seven or eight years. I mean, they just, you know, they, they take it very seriously and they get um, deeply engaged in it and it benefits them just the process alone. Many of these institutions will say if, you know, the process helped us, whether we get the designation or not, or, you know, it almost didn't matter. Of course, it matters to their president, whether they get the designation, but they'd say we learned so much just going through this process. We had people sitting in the room about talking about these issues and the impact that we have on the economy or in our communities that we've never had in the same room together before, because that happens a lot at universities. You have people working in many different places. So anyway, 
all of this was very gratifying to feel that we had created something that many universities were um, finding so much value in. I think what happened next was I needed I needed to figure out now how to like take all of that to the next level. So one of the things that was great about the organization I was working in was that I had a freedom. You know, you said you have the support to do what you want to do. I think of it more as I had the freedom to do this. I mean, it was a great organization in that everybody did their thing and they had the freedom to do that. And we all created, you know, whether we were working in student success or, you know, helping people figure out how to advance the research enterprise of institutions or doing the kinds of impact focus work, we could all do our own thing, which was great until I got to the point where I was like, now this stuff needs to be better connected. It needs to be better connected across leadership at the institutions. And I looked around and I said, I don't know if this organization as the current culture of the organization is the best culture to support that kind of movement. Um, uh, and it was not a bad culture. I mean, it was a, it was great. I mean, there were a lot of great things uh, about working there and a lot of great people and really committed people, dedicated people. Um, but I was just thinking, you know, I think to get things to the next step uh, for these institutions, I can do a better job of that in a different kind of role. And the other thing was just simply here, I I've spent my whole life kind of being observant about the ways in which other people do things. Like you've, you've actually helped me understand better, better Robbie in the last 30 minutes, kind of some of how I've come to some of this than, um, than, than I've, you know, in all of the years that I've thought about it. But in any case, I think you've observed wisely that I've been this great observer. Like I see how systems work together and I see how things, you know, can kind of come together. Um, at that level, when you're working at a national association, you are seeing the very, you're seeing the best stuff. You're seeing um, the people who want to be seen, uh, you're getting this great national perspective on things. You know, I was learning from these institutions and I was going over to Capitol Hill to, you know, talk to, to uh, Congress people about uh, how all of this works. And it was really kind of a cool place to be. But at the end of the day, I felt like I don't really know how it's happening. I don't, I'm not in it enough to know how it is actually playing out. And, you know, it wasn't like ed tech where I actually was doing it at our college or university before, you know, before I started my doctoral program, it was like a new field to me. And I had only ever seen it from this kind of national, you know, mm -hmm. perspective. The closest I got to it was actually when I did my doctoral dissertation research and was interviewing all these people at, at the University of Massachusetts, which was the subject of my, um, my dissertation. Anyway, the, the point I'm trying to get to here is I wanted to be closer to it, but I didn't want to be so close that I was working at a university and having to deal with everything you have to deal with when you're working at a university. I, I was not that I, you know, big organizations just automatically have some complexities and difficulties and they had, there's a lot of advantage to all of that and, and, uh, you know, resources and, and, uh, you know, support and things like that. I just didn't see myself being ready to go back to that. I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be closer to the work, but not so close that I was ingrained in and entrenched in the, the various, uh, ways of a particular university. So, so it's been great because. I've worked on projects with, I don't know, dozen or so different universities and other kinds of organizations. And I've gotten close enough to be very involved in a particular initiative, 
but not so close that I have to, you know, kind of deal with the day to day. It sounds like you've designed the kind of freedom you really wanted to have and to be closer to the impact. So you'd know whether these theories, <laughs> these policies were moving the needle in the way you were wanting it to be moved, um, as opposed to just like, it looks good on, like, it looks good <laughs> from a, from a 30,000 foot view. Um, as you made the shift, I mean, what, some of the best advice I ever got was on this was from Dory Clark, who I know we both, we both know, but she said, it's time to leave your job when it gets in the way of your business. So I'm curious whether you had a side hustle or whether you left one role and then started a business. Like how, how did you make that shift from working to entrepreneur? Um, I did not have a side hustle. I didn't have time for a side hustle in that job. Um, for sure. I, you know, it was a, it was a, that was a full-time plus commitment. Um, with the, the way I made it was mainly, first of all, I had a supportive husband who uh, was willing to take the risk that we would be taking um, and see how it would go. But I also had a huge amount of confidence because of the the one of the best things about that job that I had was I created a great network. I mean, I knew people at research universities all over the U.S. I knew people in lots of different organizations uh, that serve those research universities. So. I felt a good deal of confidence that my network would sustain me. And I was absolutely right. I have not had to, on the consulting side of my business, I have not had to market myself. The work comes and now it's coming from, you know, previous clients and referrals and things like that. But at the beginning, it was just people in my network called me and said, oh, you're so glad you're, you're available now. You can come and help us with X, Y, or Z. And, um, you know, that, so so that's why how I did it. I was just, I mean, I'm not sure I would have been as fortunate or, you know, Knockwood, our business has been very good on the consulting side. My husband was able to leave his job and come to work with me full time. Um, and we're getting really great and interesting projects and, and they keep coming. Um, it's actually now a challenge. My challenge is, an, so my challenge as an entrepreneur has never been that my challenge is now that we're trying to do this other stuff. We're creating this whole content side of the business. You know, you mentioned Venn Collaborative. We've got this thing called Venn Workshop where we offer courses and learning circles. And um, we're trying to be content creators and generate more content. We're not trying to do that just me and Arthur, but we're also trying to create a community of professionals that are part of this collaborative and helping them be content creators. And so the challenges now are finding time to do all of that because none of that's paying the bills and won't for a while. Um, and, and learning, there's so much to learn. So of course I take advantage of every free thing, every free thing you put out. I, I do everything, you know, I did Chris uh, Fenning's webinar yesterday. I, 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 I take advantage of all the learning I can. And then I, I spend some money on it too. You know, when, when I have the budget, um, I'll go and take a course about being a creator or, you know, I took Dory's course about being a recognized ex expert. Um, so that's how I'm making the transition. I guess now I think about it to being one type of entrepreneur, which is when you're a consultant, that's a specific kind of entrepreneur. But when you're actually creating content and trying to sell content, it becomes something very different. And um, the way I'm making that transition is it's dawning on me at this moment, the same way I've ever made any of these transitions. I'm finding the smart people 
like you and Dory and Chris and and all of these others who have great resources and um and I'm finding ways to tap into those resources and and make use of them and I'm building new networks as I do it and building new community so in reverse the uh the through line of your life is so clear <laughs> it's like when you were living it it probably felt like a broken road but you know it's it's a there's a really clear thread of you being good at assessing people and networks and systems. And um, the thing that I really wanted to note was that you were at a place for seven years and clearly the effort you put into building that network paid off. A lot of people, um, maybe it's because they don't ever think about the next job. They, they get complacent once they have a role. They just don't do a lot to nurture the networks while they have them, while they have a job, I should say. Um, and so it sounds like part of your work required you to almost be involved. Like, like the the work itself helps you be more invested in your network and be current and connected with people. Um, that that piece about people saying, oh, I'm so glad you're available now. Like um, that was great as long as the thing they want you to do was more of what you wanted to be doing. Um, I had a, the issue where I was leaving a, a fundraising events role. And so I got some people who did events who wanted me to like, help them with events. And it, it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. And other people who wanted me to review their fundraising plans, <laughs> which really wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So, um, so it's like messaging clearly on what you were known for was really like upfront people, people got that. Um, I'm also really curious because like you built a lot of content in the role you had before you left, like creating this van, creating the workshops, like there was a lot you invested in that. How much of that were you able to carry over with you into the work you're doing today? Or did you have to like recreate things or recreate models? Or were you able to say like, we're building on this current model. I'm going to teach you how to employ this better. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I guess I, I think we have, I mean, everything comes right. The name of the organization, Venn Collaborative comes from, that work for sure. And everything that we do, we sort of try to embody the spirit of it, you know, and try to make sure that we're, um, I've recently learned this uh, phrase and have become part of this community that's exploring this phrase, systems convening. And I think of myself as a systems convener. And so that we try to embody that in terms of like this talent innovation place thing, we try when we're working with clients to think about what are all of the different aspects of this, even if we're focused on an entrepreneurial ecosystem building effort, how are we thinking about the other elements, you know, of, of community place um, or talent and workforce development? How do we make sure that all of these things kind of blend? Um, we have... And I would say that some of the content we're developing, so for example, one of the courses that we're developing right now is called uh, Designing a Roadmap for Transformative Regional Impact, which uh, is maybe a phrase that doesn't mean a lot to people who are listening, but it means a lot to the people, the kinds of people that we work with in the field. And um, the the developers of this course, Tim and Nancy Franklin, I actually worked for Tim Franklin when I was a grad student at Penn State, and he was leading an effort that really has inspired a lot of my work since then. Um, you know, it was his models and frameworks that led me to do this work with 
the APLU members around talent innovation in place. So they're developing a course that really is about that. Like it's about their kind of flavor of it or their their take on it, but their experiences. And so really that's, I keep telling them they're creating the Venn Collaborative 101 course because they're really, they're doing the talent innovation in place course. I think what we're learning is that we could do a lot more of just looking at stuff that is already available, existing and build on it. You know, you and I were talking earlier about just repurposing content. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And that's one of the things we're learning as content entrepreneurs, I guess, is that, you know, all of that stuff is very valuable. And the fact of the matter is, is that only a thin slice of people probably even have learned about it and have been able to take advantage of it. So there's there's a great opportunity to think about how do you cr- turn those kinds of things into things that can be usable right now, smaller things that people can, you know, uh, consume more easily and so forth. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I take these things that I've already worked on and turn them into short blogs or, um, or opportunities for, um, uh, you know, webinars or or whatever the kinds of content it is that we're working on. But I probably haven't thought about that enough because instead what I do, and I think all of the folks that we're convening, we're making this mistake that we have to come out with something. It's like when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, like everybody would tell you when you're doing your doctoral dissertation, you do not, you're not going to change the world with your dissertation. Don't try to make this the thing that is going to be the definitive word on X, Y, or Z topic. It's, it's not going, you know, what they don't tell you is nobody's even going to read your dissertation. Um, but so the idea that um, we're trying to like, like these courses that we're doing, actually, I think we're spending a lot of time on them when we shouldn't, like we should be going, all we have to do is sit down in front of a camera and say the things that we know, and that's going to be pretty uh, powerful. Um, we also have to make sure that that's stuff that people care about. And that's another piece of, I think, our our, our work that we're working yeah. on. We've learned from you on that front and, and others. Um so anyway, I forget what the question was now. That's I cool. probably yeah. rambled because no, I'm this good is at great. it. But. I want to give a shout out to Chris Fanning more formally. Chris, um, I've been working with Chris. He's he's uh, encouraging him to develop. He's got a social dissellable content program, um, which he is, on um, the moment that we're recording, he's launching the, the iteration after the pilot. And uh, he's great. He's a great sort of um, case study around like, able to take an idea and in just a few months like pilot it and then another couple of months have have a bigger version out there and it's it's exactly what people need because he's interviewed them which is the point you just were starting to make and i think uh as content creators we often it's like chase the ideas that we have in our head as opposed to what people on the street need um and a lot of times what they need is the stuff that's a low-hanging fruit and the, the one-on-one to even even join us in the bigger conversations, which is the part that we're also excited about. Uh, and one of the things I've, I've learned that is really useful that I'll just mention here is to create a start here section on a website where you could actually give people uh, like little gateways into certain pieces of content because usually that early stuff that you create has been buried on your site because it's the way everything's chronological, but that's the stuff that people need to see in order to really join the current conversation. So you can point them to your top three articles, your top three videos on XYZ um, piece that was is, is really the introduction to those different topics. And then they can sort of more fully jump in. So 
Um, that was a, uh, years ago. I learned that, and I think it's a really clever way to get around the problem of constantly have to reinvent. You can also just repackage and eBooks and all that stuff. So Chris, Chris has got a great concept on that. All that. As a question, um, I want to ask you as we're wrapping up. So um, when you think about your bigger network, I mean, clearly you're a person who's been very thoughtful about how you've networked and and built relationships. You have sort of the inner circle of people that you know you're going to stay in touch with. But when you think of the second and third layer or tiers out, uh, the people you see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, I should mention you like each other. <laughs> These are people you enjoy. Uh, how do you think about nurturing and sustaining those kinds of connections, the people that are not top of mind all the time, but people you want to stay in touch with, any habits, philosophies, practices? Um, I think, you know, it goes back to my thing about listening. Like I try to just, uh, I try to be aware of what's going on in those people's universes. Um, so LinkedIn is a great thing for that, you know, like to be able, for those who are active on LinkedIn, who kind of fit in that category that you just talked about, I can follow them and I can kind of pay attention to what, what they care about. What are the things that are going on for them? And and so I try to do that. I try to probably not very as systematically as I should, um, but, you know, I do try to pay attention to it and kind of file it away and know that, you know, so-and-so has just been moved into this new job or so-and-so has just launched this new center at their university. Um, and I try to think about, you know, how that gives me an opportunity to reconnect with them. Um mm-hmm. I, I often feel like I don't have the time that I would like to have to do that follow-up. And I think that that's one of the things I've learned from you and others that being intentional about that and having a system doesn't have to be super complex. It can just be, you know, just something that helps you do it. Um, so I do think I need to improve on that front, but I do think kind of being aware, listening, trying to pay attention to what's going on with the people that, you know, um, I think that's, that's a big part of it for me. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's the main thing. I, you know, awesome. I, again, I would just like to turn it now into some intentional strategies. How how can I then use that to kind of do the outreach and find well, out what you tune, they need? If you tune into this section of the interviews I've done <laughs> over the last 300 episodes, you'll get some ideas. <laughs> um, final question. Uh, you know, we are clearly going to stay in touch. You're one of the folks who have signed up for my content and connection club. Um, which is means we uh, can see each other every week. If you if you kind of come to my weekly event, you're active in the online community. We you suggested an accountability thread, so we got that going. Uh, we just added a new resources mentioned at virtual happy hours thread um, that Ruth suggested. So lots lots of good things that are being organized online, and that's contentandconnectionclub.com for those listening in who want to join in on the fun. Um, so let's say it's a year from now. And I'm suddenly realizing it's been a year since this interview. And I want to know at that point in the future. And I say like, oh my God, how's that a year been? What are we going to be celebrating? What are we toasting to all your successes in the year ahead? What are you most looking forward to? What am I most looking forward to? I'm looking forward to really getting traction with the the content, uh, the professional development content that we're creating with these courses. So our courses are these five-week uh, kind of asynchronous online learning experiences. And now we're introducing the idea of peer learning circles, which I think a lot of people who might be listening to you might know the word mastermind. We've kind of modeled them after masterminds, but we're not calling them masterminds. We're, we're calling them peer learning circles where we have people go through a eight-week experience with a kind of uh, very specific community. So I'm looking forward to 
you know what? It's not even getting them, getting the traction. To me, what I'm looking forward to is learning from the first people who engage in these things, what the value is. Um, We actually just created a new program. We're inviting select people to join what we're calling our council of original learners. Cool. Um, And this group of people will be people who can take advantage of these professional development offerings at a discounted rate. And the commitment that they make is giving us some feedback and helping us to shape them and improve these things. And that's what I'm really looking forward to is that kind of learning about what we've done right, what we need to tweak, what we need to improve. So I think that's that's the- a very cool program. Thank you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm so thrilled we're going to stay in touch, Jim, and I can't wait to celebrate all this as it unfolds. How can people follow you and connect with your work? Uh, Vencollaborative.org is the best place to check out our website and see what kinds of things we have on offer. And then LinkedIn, find me on LinkedIn. Please connect with me. I love connecting with new people. I do think one of the best ways to strengthen your network is to bring original and novel and different voices into it that people who you wouldn't normally connect with. So I invite lots of people to connect with me on LinkedIn and that's pretty much the best way. Uh, uh, collaborative.org LinkedIn and Jim at vencollaborative.org. So we'll also add the link to your new podcast, the collaborative effect, the show notes at on Jim, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, not just for having me here, but just for everything that I've learned from you over the last few months, Robbie. I really appreciate being part of your community. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jim. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 303. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe or follow for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.